Well, uh, we are going to dismiss children for Children's Church. We are continuing with a, a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, before we turn to the text to read it, just reflect on, on uh, some of the things we've been praying about. If, if you're new here and you just heard all of our prayers, you know that uh, number one, uh, we are very interested in the university community. It's been our mission since the beginning uh, to, to have outreach and care for college students that live around Pittsburgh. There are multiple universities and colleges right in this area, and it's been our mission since the beginning to be an outreach, to be a place of worship, and to be a community for people moving through not only the university, but also the, the massive medical systems that train people uh, coming from all over the world and going uh, all over the world. Um, a couple implications of that. Uh, one is that, as, uh, as you've heard us praying, we're, we're rec- recognizing we may need a new venue. Um, this uh, building is being sold. We'll know within the next week or two more about uh, what that sale would look like. Uh, and so we're preparing to look for, for other things. We hope to be able to uh, tell you within a couple of weeks uh, how we expect things to unfold. But we do ask you to join with us and and praying for that move, and in particular, um, that uh, if we have to move, that we would continue to be as accessible uh, to college students as we are now. You admit this is a pretty good location. We're in the middle of Pitt's campus, really. Uh, also, just uh, remind you, with so many people doing so many things, it's easy to lose sight of them, but uh, as we've prayed, we would be remiss if we were not uh, praying for uh, other college workers uh, like Callie and Zenny at Pitt and uh, Caitlin Van Meerbeck uh, at Point Park. We're so thankful for them. And you may not have known this if you're not an insider, uh, but our, our worship team today during uh, Daniel's sabbatical was just full of college students connected through our college ministries. And it's a really a wonderful way for us to remember we don't only serve college students, but they serve us. And we're thankful for that partnership. Uh, we look today at Matthew uh, chapter 3. Verses 13 through chapter 4, 11, uh, we're moving to a really exciting part of the book. This is the first week where Jesus appears as an actor in the story, and we hear uh, his first words as he emerges with a clear identity, at least for us as a reader, and then he is tested and tried, where his identity is more fully revealed uh, through the testing Uh, I'll read the the passage, and then we'll together affirm this is God's word. We'll begin in Matthew 3.13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear, him, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to them, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these will be give, I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, this is a significant passage in the the book of Matthew. As I mentioned, Jesus is appearing uh, for the first time as a character, speaking, acting, doing things. Thus far, for several sermons through the uh, book of Matthew for a couple of chapters, we've seen Jesus uh, either being predicted or we've seen the stage being set for him. But now, the main character emerges on the stage. These are scenes that are uh, perhaps familiar, if you're somewhat familiar with the gospel stories. Uh, the, uh, Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke together have a similar flow to the beginning of them, the ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, the, the temptation or the trial in the desert. But they really are extraordinary. It was good for me to have time this week to slow down and and read through the text to try to meditate on and examining uh, more carefully what's going on. Uh, The reflection that came to my mind as I read it and and sort of felt a little bit myself the drama of Jesus emerging as a character. I I found myself thinking that in in these terms that this is essentially an extraordinary painting a masterpiece, so to speak, that we can easily pass over. Uh, You've uh, perhaps been to museums before. Uh, You'll see people doing various things in a museum. Uh, Sometimes there's a a whole tour moving quickly, and as the people go, they glance left and right, they see the painting, and they move on. Oh, a Rembrandt. Oh, look, a Picasso. Van Gogh, we've seen this before. This picture's on a famous book at our house. And then as you go through the next room of modern art, people look perplexed. Or maybe if the group is young, they're shielding the eyes of their children. Oh, don't look at that. But there are other people in the museum, people who know what they're looking for, and they look at the paintings differently. In fact, the museum invites this sort of an interaction. There are people who will stand back across the room to take it in to see the broadness and the scope. They won't move quickly, but they'll stay and they'll pause and they'll reflect. And they'll think about the work and its context and its time. The little description next to it helps you to place it in a context of that painter's life or of the time period and the location in which they were. And then, then gradually, a person really looking at the painting will move. They'll look at it from a different angle. You'll notice the benches that are, on, that are provided for you in, in the uh, museum. They're there to take it in from a perspective. But perhaps having done that, you'll move closer. If it's a famous painting, they might have a, a, a little something in front so you can't get too close. But you'll go closer and you'll notice the intricacy of the brush strokes. 
And you'll see it from a closer angle and you'll almost begin to enter in and experience the realities the painting is pointing to. I'd like to encourage you to think of this text that way today. You may be tempted to move quickly past it, either because it's familiar or maybe if it's unfamiliar, some parts of it are weird. Jesus in the desert with the devil, what do you do with that after all? Maybe you're tempted to dismiss too quickly or to move past it to the other parts of the story where Jesus really teaches us something or does a powerful miracle. What I'd like to do today is ask you to slow down with me and, and look at the passage from two vantage points. We'll start by stepping back and seeing it's in its context, seeing the, the beauty of the message, especially as we understand where it fits in a bigger story. But then secondly, we'll move in closer and we'll try to look at it and, and see how we relate to the story. I think by doing both, we'll have a balance in our interaction with this uh, really extraordinary text. Uh, so uh, first and foremost, let's begin by stepping back and viewing the story from a vantage point uh, of, of a broader scope. What we see as we look at these two passages together, the baptism of Jesus and his uh, trial in the desert, his temptation of Jesus, is that Jesus is identifying with his people for the purpose of his ministry. Jesus is identifying with his people for the purpose of a ministry that he's engaged in. And this, these passages together form a really important part of not only the gospel of Matthew as a whole, but the big picture Bible story. That, that's what we really want to make sure we get a hold of when we see it. We don't want to lose the big picture of what's happening here. So how do we see this? A, a couple ways as we look at it. Uh, first of all, we notice the very first words of Jesus echo something that Matthew's been saying for several chapters. Uh, Jesus came to be baptized by John. Uh, we learned last week that John was baptizing people for the remission of sins. It was an act of, of real humility on the part of the Jewish people to say, I need this much cleansing from God. They went to the wilderness. They were called out of their comfort. They were called out of their systems of religion, and, and he, they were baptized for uh, in, in, the, in the wilderness. Well, when Jesus comes to John, John says, I've been preparing people for you. This baptism prepares them for you. The baptism uh, may, may point to something greater like the forgiveness of sins. You don't need that. I should be baptized by you, not you by me. That's what John says. And then the very first words of Jesus, Jesus echoes something that Matthew's been telling us throughout. He says, it is necessary that we do this. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. He uses the same fulfillment language that Matthew has repeated many times. He tells us Jesus is coming to fulfill what was predicted. Now Jesus said, in my action, I will fulfill righteousness. I will do what is right and proper. And it's true, Jesus didn't need to be baptized for any forgiveness of his sins. He was sinless. But in his baptism, he is identifying with the right actions of God's people. He is doing what is right. He is walking in righteousness. And he is identifying with us as a people who need to be renewed. 
in the front of your bulletin, we have a quote from one scholar that I think captures this well. Craig Keener, in a commentary, writes this. Uh, the baptism of Jesus represents his ultimate identification with Israel at the climactic stage in her history, confessing her sins to prepare for the kingdom. Jesus' baptism, like his impending death, would be vicarious or in place of, on behalf of, embracing on behalf of others with whom the Father had called him to identify. So in his baptism, Jesus is saying, I belong to this people that need to be baptized, renewed, and cleansed. I will walk in righteousness, doing what is proper for them. There's the second way we see Jesus identifying. It's a little, uh, a little more complicated. We have to think about it. Um, but after the baptism, uh, we're told that the Spirit descends from heaven like a dove, like a dove, uh, the Holy Spirit having some visible form uh, descending on Jesus. We don't know if other people saw this or not. Presumably, John did. Matthew doesn't tell us about anyone else who was there. The rest of the book will be one in which people will be uncertain about the identity of Jesus. So it may be that no one else really saw this. We don't know. But then, matching that visual image, there is a voice from the heavens. And we don't know if anyone heard this beyond Jesus in John the Baptist. Uh, but the voice speaks something so important for us to know as the readers. It is the affirmation of God the Father speaking from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now this is the second time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has been referred to as the Son of God. And there's really two aspects of it. On one hand, we know that Jesus is eternally the Son of God. From all history, He is one with the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And we want to describe what's unique about Jesus in this eternal sense. We use the word Son, capital S-O-N. He's the eternal Son of God. But in the Gospel of Matthew, the prior reference to Jesus being the Son was a little different. In the very beginning, you may remember, and this is in your additional scriptures, Matthew chapter 2, Jesus had to flee the crazy king, Herod, they chased him to Egypt, and when he came back, Matthew said, this was to fulfill what the prophet said, out of Egypt I called my son. Now there the, cap the, the word son is lowercase s. That's because this prophet, the prophet Hosea, was originally describing the experience of God's people, Israel, when they left Egypt through Moses. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they came into the promised land. Hosea said Israel is called to be God's adopted son. Israel is called to live in the world to show God's character faithfully to the nations. And yet they struggled to do this. It was very difficult. Uh, so Jesus is both the eternal son of God, but he is also identifying with God's people and he is going to be faithful in their experience as the son of God that Israel was always meant to be. And I think both of those things are happening there. Both of them are in view there. Jesus would be faithful to do what God had called his people from the beginning. He is the faithful son who comes out of Egypt who goes through the waters of baptism. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul refers to Israel going through the Red Sea as being a baptism. And then Jesus will be tempted in the wilderness as Israel was tempted and tested in the wilderness. They spent 40 years and he spends 40 days. 
So the, the third thing we, we notice as we look at the passage is that the experience of testing in the wilderness is very, very similar to the Old Testament story of the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus and then being tested for 40 years. I think it's more than a coincidence. I think the language very specifically brings that up. And here's how we know it. Uh, Jesus is tested. There are three temptations there. We'll talk about them in a second. But in each three, Jesus submits to the authority of God's word. In the story of the Bible begins with our first humans, Adam and Eve, being tempted in the garden. And the temptation is, has God really said? Here, Jesus goes back in, in where the first Adam failed, Jesus is faithfully, holds fast to God's word. He actually answers each of these temptations with a reference from Scripture. Jesus is living as a faithful human. Referencing God's word, holding fast to it as his anchor and guide in unsteady times. But what's particularly interesting for me is that all three of these references come from a very narrow section of the Old Testament. All three of the references reference the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8. Now this either means Jesus is showing off. I can fight you with my left hand. I will disarm all of your arguments with... References from three chapters, right? And, and he could do that. Um, it also could mean that he wants us to be thinking about those chapters. And I think Matthew quotes them for that reason. Deuteronomy 6 through 8 is a part of the Old Testament that particularly focuses on the testing of Israel in the wilderness. I think we're, we're reinforcing the point. If you look at your bulletin insert today, you can see references to it. I'll just point out two of them. Uh, the uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus responds, uh, uh, you shall not put your Lord your God to a test. You heard us read that. That was one of his responses. The full verse reads, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa in Exodus chapter 17. It's a very specific thing. The context is Israel tested in the, in the wilderness. Uh, later, when, when Jesus said, you shall not, or earlier, when Jesus said, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the context of Deuteronomy 8, where the quote is taken, says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God had led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you keep his commandment or not. You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is not only grabbing hold of Scripture, he's doing it in such a way that illustrates he is faithful where others have failed. He is the true and faithful second Adam. He's the true and faithful Israel. This is the big point of the passage. Jesus is identifying with us, and he's winning a victory where everyone else failed. He is the great champion. He will walk through testing, anointed as the Son of God. He will walk through testing and he will win. He will be faithful in his ministry without being deterred. And when that ministry leads him to the cross, he will give his life as a ransom for many. It's an essential part of that story. And if we miss that part of it, if we are able to stand back and see it, we don't really understand the passage. But that doesn't exhaust the passage. I invite you, having seen that, and I know I move quickly through a lot of material, 
we can grasp hold. Yeah, this is a big part of the story. The cross works because Jesus is my representative and he's faithful and he was raised from the dead. All of that's necessary. But I believe the passage invites us to look at it from another angle, a second angle. Invites us to walk closer, to examine the rich details, to extend the analogy, the the brush strokes and the, the quality of what's going on. It invites us to enter in. Not just to see it from afar as a, a part of a bigger story, important as that is, invites us to enter into the story and see it from up close. Invites us to think of ourselves as characters in the story, ones who also are tempted, who see in the temptation of Jesus hope for facing our trials as well. I'll look at a, a few parts of the story from that angle, from the close up angle. First of all, we see the baptism, the baptism of Jesus. We're not baptized in exactly the same way uh, John the Baptist baptized. Uh, The rest of the book of the Bible makes that clear, particularly the book of Acts. There are similarities and there are differences. But as we think of Jesus being baptized and hearing this word of affirmation over him, reaffirming his identity, we are invited through faith in Jesus to enter in and to also view our baptism as a testimony of God's blessing on us and to see What is pictured in baptism, the way faith connects us to Jesus and to know that by faith, we too are sons of God. We hear that benediction over us. In his letter to the Galatians, the apostle Paul makes these connections. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ... And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of of the Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Paul says baptism is a picture of faith. In in cases like today where Bennett is baptized, his baptism comes first and we look for faith to follow. But one of the pictures is this. In baptism, we're connected with Jesus, we're identified with Jesus, we're washed by trusting in Jesus and being united in faith. And being in Christ, we now are called sons. The first takeaway from all of this is that, is that the, the scriptures invite us to see that through faith we are in Jesus and we have over us this same blessing and benediction that you are a son of God through faith in Jesus and connected to him. God is well pleased with you. It's important for us to remember because the the affirmation of Jesus that he hears from the voice of heaven precedes his testing and his temptation. I think it's important we see them together. It's actually that very thing that will be tested as we go forward. So the premise of all of this for Jesus is that having been Having the word of affirmation, you are my son in whom I am well pleased, Jesus is now equipped to walk through the trials and the temptations that would tempt him to disbelieve everything he just saw and heard. In many ways, that's how we experience temptation, isn't it? If we're honest, we're not exactly sure uh, how to think about the devil. We don't know how he appeared in this passage. I feel fairly certain he didn't have uh, a, a pointy tail, horns, red skin, and, and, a, and a pitchfork. 
In fact, the Bible says that the devil is a spiritual reality that can appear as an angel of light. It's com- he's compared to a roaring lion. Uh, the Bible tells us there are malevolent, malevolent or evil spirits in the world that would seek to harm God's people. And yet the power of evil spirits does not lie in their ability to directly harm us, but it lies only in their ability to disconnect us from the promises of God. The the, the teaching of uh, spiritual realities throughout the Bible says God alone is king. The tempter seeks to remove you from trusting in the king. And so what's happening in all of these temptations is not that Jesus is going to be directly physically assaulted, but he's tempted to let go of his trust in God. He's tempted to let go of that affirmation, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased, and to walk in something else. That's the nature of temptation. We, we let go of that which God has said. So uh, the first temptation we see as we move through it is a temptation, uh, maybe the most basic and identifiable, it's the temptation of uh, a physical relief. Jesus had been fasting 40 days in the wilderness. We can only imagine how hungry he must have been. And the tempter comes to him and says, why are you so hungry? After all, you're the son of God. You could turn these stones into bread by the power of your word. Now, students of the Bible know that this temptation is rooted in an incredible truth. We know from the rest of the, the story that Jesus actually could do that. In, in whether it's from stones or not, we don't know. But he had the ability to, to provide bread for people that were hungry through supernatural means. And, and that in itself is not wrong. But here, Jesus knows he's been led by the Spirit into a time of testing And though food in itself is not bad, the temptation is that he would relieve his physical suffering by taking something in his own power and against God's timing. And so too for us, we find that very often we face temptation in a similar way. In fact, I would guess most often the temptation that we identify most regularly as temptation is a physical temptation to take something maybe good in an improper way or an improper time. In in fact, in our American culture, the majority of temptation language generally involves eating something you shouldn't eat or some sort of sexual activity, right? If you go to a a restaurant and you open up and the desserts would say, you know, know, sinful cinnamon buns or whatever. (laughs) I should have prepared that analogy in advance, but, but you, you know, they, we use that temptation language, right? This is a, a temptation, chocolate, you know, sinful chocolate or whatever. People are like, oh, I know, I probably shouldn't eat another 600-calorie 600, you know, 600 dessert after I had uh, purgatory, right? They do this, right? Purgatory, the whole thing's built on the premise of temptation to eat too much. Or, I mean, the television show I saw advertised recently, Temptation Island, right? And and the advertisement for the show was all about, you know, who's going to sleep with who and my goodness. Okay, so you could probably recognize that as temptation, right? Jesus is tempted physically. How does he respond? Well, Jesus responds by quoting, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
What does this teach us? Well, it teaches us a couple of things. First of all, we remember the big picture. Jesus was faithful. Jesus was faithful in temptation. He went to the cross. He died for my sins. He's raised from the dead. He's now ruling and reigning in heaven. He's a great high priest who can help me in my time of need. Jesus helped me in this temptation. That's the first thing. The second thing we can learn, though, is in his response, he teaches us to remember that physical, physical stuff in itself is good, but not ultimate. Isn't that how his response is working? Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus taught people to pray for daily bread. He, he gave the masses bread when they were hungry, but not bread alone. Every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus is reminding us here that though bread may be important, though we are physical beings with physical needs, the glories of God are bigger. The call of God is bigger. The, the, the promises of God are bigger. And when we say no to something immediate that feels overwhelmingly attractive, we are not escaping reality. We are embracing a greater reality. It's not bread alone that we live for. You were made for something more than that, Jesus said. You were made for God's word, for relationship with him. Would you receive that and live in it? Well, the, the devil is not done. Uh, uh, the second one also uh, presents uh, uh, interesting questions we can't answer. Uh, the second temptation, Jesus is taken to the temple and invited to jump off. That God would demonstrate his power to save him. Now, we don't know how it was that Jesus got to the temple. We don't know hardly anything about how spiritual beings work. Some of thought maybe this is a vision, others that there was supernatural power to take him there. But it does seem that Jesus had the opportunity to actually throw himself into a place of great need and dependence from the very temple itself. The temptation, however, is really, if we think about it, a temptation of identity. The, temptation, the tempter says this to Jesus, if you are God, prove it. If you are who you think you are, wouldn't it be nice to know? Wouldn't it be nice to show other people? Presumably, if he's at the real temple and he drops off and he is lifted up and suspended in midair, everyone would see him and say, wow, that's the guy we're following. It would be quite an entrance, wouldn't it? I mean, Jesus is going gonna, gonna to launch onto the scene. Boom, here I am. And if he's suspended and, you know, 15 feet above everyone else, it would be hard to deny he had claims to supernatural identity. Now, of course, that's, I'm speculating, right? But do you hear the temptation? If you are, prove it. You feel that temptation sometimes, don't you? To prove yourself. To prove yourself when you go to work. When you go to study what you're studying, some of you know what it means. They say you have imposter syndrome, so deeply afraid that everyone else in your department will find out you don't know everything they think you know right now. Uh, so afraid that the other moms on Instagram will see what your house really looks like. Or perhaps we find the words of God uh, not strong enough. We hear God speaking over us. We hear every week in our worship service we confess sin and you hear an assurance of pardon. Friends, that is meant to be 
you hearing God's word over you. And sometimes we use these very words. This, this is someone who is my son. I believe I am pleased in him. We struggle to believe it, though. And we are tempted to say, God, if you really were there, you would do this. How does Jesus respond to that? Jesus responds uh, by saying, that's not how spiritual things work. You shall not put your Lord your God to the test. He says, I'm not the one who sets the terms here. God has been so gracious and powerful to reveal himself to me. But in that revelation, Jesus is truly and fully human, walking as the faithful Israel, the true son of God. And as such, he doesn't call the shots. He doesn't place demands on God. The very heart of his relationship is one of being the son, not the director. And so the Bible reminds us, Repeatedly, that though God is a gracious and lovingly fa- loving Father, the essence of our union with Him is that we are the clay, not the potter. That we are called to submit and to trust. We don't set the terms. We don't make the demands. We don't provide our list and say, God, if you were there, you would do this. It's not how God works. And in doing that, Jesus would ultimately would have been rejecting the, the very basis of the relationship He's called into. The faithful son who trusts and follows and rests in that which God has given. All of these have so much more we could say, but I I don't want to go over too much. Third and final temptation, and we notice the, uh, the temptations have become trickier and more subtle. Not only has the tempter been trying to use scripture against him, but here we see something being offered that is not undeniably good, but certainly would be in the future of Jesus anyway. Jesus is taken to a high mountain and he, see, he is shown the kingdoms of this world. We presume some sort of visionary depiction here. And many have wondered, does the devil have authority to do it? Uh, perhaps. <laughs> well, uh, you can not email Nauman with that question, right? Nauman at cityreform.org. He'll happily tell you the answer. Uh, eventually, uh, here's what's important. What's interesting to think about is that Jesus was going to get the kingdoms of the world anyway. Students of the Bible know that. That's the story. It's going there. When he's raised from the dead, he's, he ascends to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, and, and all authority is given to him. He will have all authority as the divine son of God, but as a human king. He will have all authority. Jesus did not have all authority at this point. That's what's clear. And it's being offered to him in an alternate pathway. Rather than the pathway of cross, death, resurrection, suffering into ascension, it's, it's offered a little simpler and more direct. Painless. A painless path to kingship. Many have speculated on it. I think that's the right way to read it. You could have the kingdoms you were going to get anyway, but you can have the crown without the cross. Don't you know that temptation too? Wouldn't you like to believe that your Christian life could come easy for you? Wouldn't you like to believe you could have the blessings of God but not walk in the fellowship of suffering with Jesus? Wouldn't you like the crown without the cross, the resurrection without dying to self? 
temptation strikes close to home, doesn't it? How do we respond? First of all, we respond as we did before by recognizing Jesus was faithful. He is now ruling and reigning with all power and authority. He has right over the kingdoms and he can help us as a great high priest when we are in need. We also learn from his response and from what follows, Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He says to be the true son of God is to recognize the father sets boundaries and I live in accord with them. And then we see in this passage the temptation having been faithfully resisted. The devil flees and the angels attend to him. We see the power of God meeting him here. Friends, your temptations are real. Temptations of physical pleasure, of identity. The temptations to find the crown without the cross and to avoid the difficulties of the Christian life. But Jesus is king. He is present, and he is able to meet you now. He has power for you as you face trials and temptations. He can provide a way out. He, like a good high priest, he knows what it means to be tempted, and he can meet you, friends, just on the other side of the temptation that feels overwhelming is the power of God to meet you and care for you. Will you believe that? Will you hold on long enough to see the power of God made real? Temptation is real in our lives. May we know Jesus better as we hold fast to him and see the power of God present to deliver us. Let's close in prayer.